I also want to let you know that while you were reading your question, I muted myself and I ate a whole candy bar. This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. After temperatures hit close to 90 degrees last week, it is a rainy and chilly day with only a week left of the month of May. I broke down and turned the heater back on. My unplanted plants on the patio table currently are mocking me. Recently, I was able to find some sweet woodruff to plant under the oak tree and picked up some lavender for a couple of planters. I won't test your patience with the litany of plants left to be planted. Have you considered our Genoa trip? Our first week has filled up, but with additional interest, we have opened up a second week for others who want to go. This is for the week of October 29th through November 5th, and it will have the same itinerary, readings, and location as the initial week. So if you've been on the fence or the initial dates didn't work for you, please reach out at culturaldebrispodcast at gmail.com. I can send you the necessary information. Do please consider supporting the Cultural Debris Patreon. If you enjoy the podcast, your support would be appreciated. Any amount helps. There's a link in show notes. If you could leave a five-star rating and review, it would also be most appreciated. That's free, and it would only take you a moment. I recently came across a wide selection of small Toby jugs at an antique shop I like to visit. Toby jugs are ceramic pitchers that are made in the form of a person, whether real or fictional, kind of like a small mug. These are essentially 3D caricatures, and considering my love of Vanity Fair spy caricatures, they certainly have their appeal. They had a Sherlock Holmes jug, which I couldn't resist. Then I came across a Winston Churchill jug online, but really, I can't start another collection. Still, they are pretty nifty. Our poem is by Raisa Maritone and is titled Meditation. Darkness below and darkness above. Under Archangel's black wing, the plan of God unfolds. Creation's paradox is infinite. Eternity is being made of time. Imperishable good by evil fostered. Humanity plods onward, seeking justice on lazy byways of iniquity and the deceits and errors of today. Tomorrow's truth will serve. The little good, though unavailing, it may seem to overcome disaster in our time contains the seed of love's eternal tree. My guest is Dominican friar Father Gregory Pine. Father Pine is a regular on the podcast Godsplaining and frequently appears on Pints with Aquinas. He is author of the new book, Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly, published by Our Sunday Visitor. Father Pine and I discuss the idea of prudence, its philosophical roots, and his favorite Kentucky bourbon distilleries, plus his strange encounter with a biker in Kentucky's Red River Gorge who gave him an offer 
he didn't feel like he could refuse. Now join me as I talk with Father Gregory Pine. Father Gregory Pine, welcome to Cultural Debris. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. I appreciate you being here all the way from Switzerland. That's a that's a long way to podcast interview. It is indeed. Yeah. I uh, what does one say about Switzerland by way of simple commentary on the introduction of the fact that one lives there? Um, yeah, Switzerland. It's like Kentucky except different. Uh, maybe I could just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Okay. I well, I understand they have mountains and uh, I guess chocolate and watches. That's what I you know. Yeah, mountains, chocolate watches, milk, cheese, um, isolationism, banking. Yeah, there's that banking. No, absolutely. Financial security, a general suspicion of Americans. If you want to open a bank account, you're going to have to get around the fact that you're American in, in, in Switzerland. That's the first question they ask. And if you don't answer that question correctly, no dice, go home. It's fascinating. Um, yeah. And then, uh, they've got, they've got, they've got other things too, but maybe that's just a good thumbnail sketch. Well, I have been looking for a secure place to put all of my podcast money. Uh huh. So, uh, so Switzerland, Switzerland might be the choice. I'll, it might be the choice, but you're going to need a Swiss middleman, actually a middleman from any other sovereign nation than the United States. You got like 267 choices. I don't actually know how many sovereign nations there are, but, um, Good news is if you're interested in finding out how many sovereign nations there are, you can go to Geneva in Switzerland and go to the United Nations and probably have a, you know, a decent insight as to how many just sit around the aforementioned national table. Start counting flags. Exactly. Yeah. So how did you end up in Switzerland? Why are you in Switzerland? Well, um, as a Thomist, which is to say as an Aristotelian who didn't take the time to read Aristotle... Uh, I'm going to answer this question in a fourfold fashion. So wh- why why did I choose to go in Switzerland? I didn't, right? So uh, uh, that's the first. Um, because I expressed a desire to pursue higher studies, and I posed that desire to my superiors, and they said, apply to X, Y, and Z, different schools. Actually, there are more than three. But uh, So I did, and then they told me to go to this one. Uh, because it's a good university, and I'm working with an excellent professor, Um, and because, you know, sometimes when I pursue certain goals in life, I actually smuggle in a secondary intention, which is very desirable. And I love hiking and this is some of the most proximate and delicious hiking on offer in the world. So there you go. Whether or not those correspond to the material cause, the formal cause, the final cause and the efficient cause, I leave it to the listener listening to this for the second time to determine that. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's right because they'll be rewinding to figure that out. Absolutely. Well, as, as lovely and beautiful as I imagine and am told Switzerland is, mm. uh, you have in fact lived in a in an even better place, and that, wow. of course, as we discussed prior mm-hmm. to recording, is is Kentucky. Yeah, that's true. I love the state of Kentucky and its denizens. I was assigned there for a summer in 2017, and I was assigned there for over a year. And I guess it would have been, what would that have been? 2017, 18. So I guess it would have been 16 for the summer and then 17, 18 for longer than a year. I was a parochial vicar at the esteemed institution, which you might know or might not, St. Louis Bertrand Catholic Parish in Old Louisville, Kentucky. The neighborhood is also sometimes called Limerick. 
And uh, yeah, I also taught at Bellarmine University, one of four Catholic universities in the state of Kentucky. Um, and it was great. Uh, it was really great, actually. I got to know a lot of excellent people because St. Louis Bertrand is kind of like a magnet parish. And so far as yeah, it's got frequent confessions, what I think is good preaching and what I think is uh, good faith formation. And so people come from all kinds of places, like as far east as like Shelbyville and Simpsonville and as far west as like, yeah, Croydon or Corden, Corden, that's the one um, from across the river. And people come from New Albany and people come from Clarksville and people come from like, yeah, Bardstown. People are coming from all over the place. So it was great. I got to loan out. I, I got to know a lot of Kentucky people without moving around too much. And then people would come to visit me and I'd be like, hey, what, what would you like to see of Kentucky? And given their uh, profound knowledge, their searching knowledge of the state, they'd be like, take me to a distillery. Um, so as a result <laughs> of which, I entertain myself by going to a different distillery every time as a oh, way by that... which to do some, you know, like agro-tourism. And uh, it worked sure. out. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, dec- again, decent way to see the to see the state. And I love Kentucky. And what was, what was your favorite distillery to visit? Oh, man, that's a great question. Because they all have a different vibe. Um I um, I can tell you that my least favorite was Wild Turkey because they weren't in production in the summer months because they clean all of their stuff and they don't need to make that much product, truth be told, because their capacity is so high since they were bought by Grupo Campari. So that was that was disappointing. And also, they're the type of people who like, some people when they take you on these tours are like, you know, you can drink your bourbon however you like. You know, we don't judge. We just want you to enjoy it. And then they're like, we mix some honey in this one and we call it a bourbon drink because it's no longer bourbon. It's like, what the heck is going on here? You guys are killing me. You're absolutely killing me. Uh, and then you go to Woodford Reserve. They're like, you're at the bourbon plantation. And we're going to judge you if you do not consume your bourbon in optimal fat. I was like, that's the kind of scorn that I'm looking for. As much scorn as one can you know, kind of hope to encounter from a Kentuckian. So that was good. Jim Beam is, I mean, it's just big and it's interactive. And I knew a guy named Hunter Davis who worked at Jim Beam and specifically worked with Knob Creek and they were rolling out new products and he was, you know, having customers come in and rolling barrels out for him and they were picking it based on whatever taste profiles and stuff like that. So he was really just a super good guy, super generous, a lot of fun. So I like that too. I'll leave it at that before I start scandalizing people with bourbon knowledge. Uh, no, that you won't you won't scandalize me on here, but I might disagree with you some about okay, wild turkey, right. but but that's fine. That's fine. Actually, you know, opinions opinions vary. Can I tell Can I tell an unrelated wild turkey story? Absolutely. All right, great. So uh, I was once at a Thomistic Institute event in New York, and um, at the time I can no longer drink bourbon, by the way, because my stomach. Whatever, I'm just a big baby. Life is so tragic um, in a variety of ways. Uh, but, um, at this point I was still drinking bourbon and there was, there was a lady at the conference. It was at the Aquinas philosophy workshop. And she's like, I was thinking of trying some bourbon tonight, but, uh, I don't know. I don't know where to start. And we had like different kind of mid tier bourbons on the table and I was explaining them to her and I got to wild Turkey and I said, this is what you might call spicy. It's what you might call a little harder. Cause it was uh, wild Turkey one one I was like, it just tends to be, yeah, it just, it just hits a little harder than your typical kind of. 80 proof to 90 proof, like your Jim Beam or your Four Roses. I was like, this would be the type of thing that like a retired Baltimore police officer would drink, you know? <laughs> and there's a guy on the other side of the table who goes, I'm a retired police officer and I drink Wild Turkey 101. I was like, let's go! <laughs> <laughs> I 
Good call. Thank you. I was so that's all honestly, that's probably the proudest I've been in my life. Um <laughs> ordination day paled by comparison. Was he from Baltimore? Nah, he was, yeah. Oh impressive. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I misspoke. Yeah, I don't remember exactly where he was from. He might have actually been from more like Heartland, Midland, Great Plains oh, type okay. stuff. But he was he was yeah, certainly still. a retired police officer. Yeah, that's close enough though. Yeah. Well, very good. Yeah. You have a new book out. I do. Uh, yeah. Which is the ostensible reason that we're doing this. I, I mean, we could keep talking about bourbon, uh, but we can also talk about your book from uh, our Sunday visitor. It is called Prudence. Uh-huh. What caused you to write a book about prudence? I'm going to answer this question like I answer the question about graduate studies, which is to say with lots of reasons and in an overly prolix fashion. Well, the publisher said, hey, Father Gregory, would you write a book about prudence? And I said, sure. That was, I guess, the simplest answer. But I'd, I'd been reading about prudence according to St. Thomas Aquinas, and as a result of which I was shoehorning it into all of my engagements. So people were like, hey, would you, um, would you like come to this young adult event and speak to us about Marian apparitions? And I'd be like, sure, yeah, yeah. And then like 12 minutes in, I'd be like, the thing about Our Lady of Fatima is that she was prudent, okay? Um, because I was just getting really excited about it. Because when you hear prudence, you think most boring virtue in the world. You think, let's take a nap. You think, let's never study, you know, ethics again. Uh, but then when you get into it, you're like, holy smokes, this holds the key to the proverbial kingdom. The kingdom, I, I suppose, being, you know, freedom and confident choice. So, yeah, I'd been, I'd been working it into a lot of things. And the editor had taken note and she was like, hey, I see that you got things to say about this virtue. Would you like to say those things in written form? And I said, yes. And then it took forever because apparently books have a longer gestation period than a baby blue whale. Um, but I think it corresponds to a need in the culture. And I think that it corresponds to, you know, like part of the story of this culture salvation, not in a general sense, but in a very particular sense for, you know, this, that, and the other person. So that, that'd be the basic landscape. Well, prudence caught my eye or the, the topic of your book being prudence caught my eye because I, uh, my sort of, uh, I guess, intellectual background is, is through, uh, Russell Kirk and, uh, Edmund Burke. And both of them are very big on prudence. Mm. And Russell Kirk even wrote a book, uh, called the politics of prudence. And, Did he really? Uh, which, yeah. Many, many years ago, I helped, uh, do some editing on that, uh, no when I was back, back in the last century. Oh, um, nice. I see what you did there. <laughs> but, uh, but of course, prudence was a, was, I guess, sort of the, the undergirding of, of Edmund Burke's, uh, political thinking and philosophical musings. And so, uh, Russell Kirk being a disciple of Burke sort of uh, adopted that and me coming along as a, as a wide-eyed student also uh, did the same. So uh, you don't reference really any of those people in your book at all. No, 0%. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but nonetheless, nonetheless. Uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of intersection there. Um, tell me, tell me what prudence is. Ooh, great question. Um, so my general go-to definition, or at least the one that I have settled upon in the course of the last couple months is, prudence is the virtue that makes you the protagonist of your life. I mean, the way that St. Thomas defines it is rectoratio agibilium, which is right reason of things to be done or in things to be done, depending on how you render it. 
sometimes you hear people describe it as, you know, the, like the virtue which command or the virtue which corresponds to practical wisdom. In shorthand, St. Thomas refers to it as the virtue that commands. Um, so, yeah, those would be some ways by which to describe it, I suppose. One of the things that really struck me uh, in, in the book, and I guess really kind of is the underpinning of the whole thing, is is the idea, this idea of prudence as necessarily tied to action. Mm. That, that you really don't have prudence, in the way you're talking about it, unless it's leading to some sort of doing. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd want to qualify, but uh, when people overqualify things, it becomes boring. So let's let's just say yes. <laughs> okay, well you're you're welcome to qualify. I mean, I don't I don't want to misrepresent you. No, 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 it's not a misrepresentation. Some people hear that though, they're like, oh, so you're telling me that in the middle of the night when I'm asleep, I got to be getting up and doing things because prudence is important. It's like, no, I, I'm not saying that. But like, also choosing not to do a thing is also doing a thing. It's just. I think it's important to have a sense for what agency entails. An agency is like, okay, my interior life gives rise to a kind of external manifestation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's visible. Basically, yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. I, I I see I, I see where you're going there. Nice. So you talk you you start off uh, with the story of of a fellow named Victor Frankel. Yeah. Uh, and uh, tell me about uh, about Victor Frankel's discovery. Yeah. So. His basic, well, he was a Jewish doctor, right? Psychiatrist. And he was, well, he had the opportunity to flee Europe prior to the Second World War. He chose to to not flee Europe. He and his family were interred, uh, like all the other members of his family died. Uh, Mother, mother, father, wife. Uh, Yeah, everyone died, uh, with the exception of him. Uh, But while he was so he was in Auschwitz, and while he was there, he made a kind of psychi- psychiatric study of the experience, or at least he made a kind of psychological study of the experience, or even philosophical study of the experience, because he was surprised by the fact that um, the more robust be- like prisoners didn't necessarily flourish, or they didn't necessarily survive in the camp. And sometimes it was these like wimpy, skinny types, uh, tall, hungry children, as I often describe myself. Um, who, who held on the longest or the most vehemently. And uh, he, he kind of crafted a theory, which was that those who had something for which to live often fared the best. He, he subsequently calls this theory logotherapy. You know, you hear the word there, logos, which means a billion things, including Torah, by the way, um, but including like reason or logic or rationale, right? So, so somebody who had discovered a why for life, you know, could... Uh, make do with any number of hows for life. And uh, yeah, I use that as an example, like with which to kind of f- frame the question of whether whether we're happy uh, and how we go about pursuing our happiness because there are a lot of competing theories for it. And I think that um, you got to motivate that question at the start or else the, the whole moral discourse which follows can tend to fall flat. Yeah, so you you talk about, or you have this quote from him, um, that it is, this is the, the pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. Mm. That if I, that if I try really hard to be happy, that, that I'm, I'm not going to make it. So, uh, so how can I sneak up on happiness without, without it knowing that that's what I'm trying to, trying to be? 
Yeah. I, I don't know if I quoted this in the book, but um, G.K. Chesterton has a line to the effect of hap- happiness cannot so much be pursued. Happiness must ensue. Um, <coughs> basically, the way that we would talk about this in ancient and medieval circles, and this even continues into the modern age, although the question gets largely reframed in terms of meaning. Um, but I think that a really good way to, you know, kind of describe this pursuit is to talk about it in terms of the good, right? Specifically to talk about it in terms of beatitude. So what we're made for is the good, right? We're made for certain perfections, which correspond to our nature. Uh, and you can think about that on the low end of the scale. You got like food, drink, sexual intercourse. As you go up, you've got like family life or political life or ecclesial life or, you know, contemplative life more broadly, you know, like knowing the truth about God, shunning ignorance, living peaceably in society, attaining to a certain tranquility of order, you know, avoiding the offense of those with whom you live, etc. Um, and we as creatures are perfected by our fruitful engagement with these goods, by our fruitful assimilation of these goods. And uh, when we are perfected by these goods, it kind of, uh, what's the word that you want to use? Uh, um, the word that St. Thomas uses, redundancia, which is basically like uh, overflow, right? So there's a kind of overflow experience in which that good will register for us in, uh, you know, like in our minds, in our hearts, in our feelings, even in our bodies. And so I think that ha- happiness is like that. Is that a my cup runneth over kind of idea? I think it is, yeah. Um, yep, I think it is. It's not something that we talk about too terribly much, but I think it's important that um, when you pursue something real or meaningful or good, however we want to describe it, I kind of steered away from language, steered away from language of the good because that discourse has become so relativistic that it's really hard. Yeah, I mean, whatever, doesn't matter. I, I talked about meaning, <clears throat> even though that too can be co- completely compromised by relativistic discourse. But you can't fight every demon in the context of, you know, a hundred and sixty-six page book. So yeah, but yeah. So you, but but you do talk about this idea of happiness. You say that God wants me to be happy. Now that's, you know, I, I guess when I hear that, my immediate reaction is sort of, you know, this is 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 this some kind of, um, you know, uh, prosperity gospel self help mm. muckety muck stuff. But I, I don't I don't feel like that's where you're going with that. Um, I could be. You never know. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have no reason to believe. That I might not tend in that direction, and you get a humpback whale, and you get a humpback whale. Um, no, so I mean, I, I when I all right, Gregory, discipline your speech, and then describe what you're thinking. All right, here we go. Um, when I typically describe happiness, I describe it as metaphysical fit or metaphysical resonance. Okay, um, so I think what's most important is that you are in fruitful dialogue with the good. Okay. Uh, and I think that when you are, and mind you, the good is a polyvalent reality. Okay. So you've got certain transcendent goods and then certain less transcendent goods, but the higher the good, the more common it is, the more broadly it distributes its goodness or it uh, communicates its goodness without being diminished. Right. And without, with, I mean, will while retaining this kind of aspect of common possession. Okay. So like at the height of these different goods, you have God. Uh, and I think that when we are in fruitful communion with the good, which is to say these different goods ordered hierarchically, um, then I think that we have a sense that though we might experience mental anguish or 
you know, a certain volitional crippling or uh, a kind of emotional turmoil uh, on account of the fact that life remains difficult and many of our pursuits are vexed uh, by ill fortune, um, by, you know, contrary or contravailing forces, etc. right? We can have a sense and the confidence that we are doing or where, what, like we are, we are simply so-called where we ought to be. And I think that that is what I mean by happiness, this worldly happiness. Obviously, it's going to take on a much fuller shape in the next world. But like, for instance, when I tell my quote unquote vocation story, I, between you and me, I guess, and everyone else listening to this podcast, but hopefully you just delete this episode and then it can just be between you and me. Um, but I, don't, don't worry. It, it, with the number of listeners I have, it's almost like it's between you and me. Oh, perfect. Okay, great. Um, so me, you, and, you know, the members of your family who listen to this podcast, which is I typically say. Actually, no, I don't think anybody in my family listens to this podcast. (laughs) Uh, yeah, when I say things that are recorded, I'm usually like, all right, so here you go, mom, because you're listening and no guarantees on anyone else. You got this. Um, but, uh, but, but like when I would tell my quote unquote vocation story, and I think the vocation stories personally are boring because I think that we're, we're basically terrible at interpreting our own lives. I think we're, we're not that great at living our own lives. And I think that we're, <laughs> we're especially bad at interpreting them because whenever something good happens, we're like, Oh my gosh, I did a good thing. It's like, no dude, there was an idiot child and the merciful God. And then this is what came about as a result. So just accept that. But regardless, irrespective, dis irrespective, regardless. Um, Whenever I tell my quote unquote vocation story, I say like, oh yeah, so before I entered the order, I was anxious, I was lonely, I was sad, and then I entered the order. And then I was anxious, and I was lonely, and I was sad. Um, because I think that a lot of times we, we, we do a poor, poor job of describing, of describing happiness like phenomenologically, such that people when they hear John 10, 10, you know, like, I promise you an abundant life. Well, that's not exactly what it says. I came that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's, that is what it says. People are like, oh, cool. So I'm going to be Christian and the life's going to be awesome. It's like, no, you're going to be Christian and then you're going to be crucified. And the hope is that you rise from the dead. And they're like, oh, that's dark. It's like, it's all dark. It's all dark all the way down. They're like, you're kind of sick. Are you American? You're sounding kind of Swedish. It's like, okay, <laughs> number one, stop lisping. And number two, you need more of this in your life. You've been watching too many Marvel movies, you know? Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Um, and I'd be willing to say that I'm, I'm probably ready to go even darker than you. Well, is that a competition that we want to have? Probably not. Well, you certainly burst the bubble of, of the uh, whole prosperity feel good thing. Yeah. It's my goal. It's my goal, man. <laughs> Just let people know that it's a, it's a veil of tears, 70 years, 80 for those who are strong. And most of them says the psalmist are emptiness and pain. <laughs> yeah. that's what podcasts are for that's right um so in in structuring i i guess sort of structuring your walk here towards towards uh choosing confidently and living boldly as your as your subtitle suggests first we have to be able to do something right so i i can't uh, I can't prudentially choose to do something that I am incapable of doing. Um, are you asking for validation on that point? Uh, elucidation. Um, so you, you can choose within time in light of future events, but I don't, I don't know exactly where you're going. So I don't want to say boring things that don't relate to your point, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> reality 
is uh, one of the conditioning factors for any prudential choice. So you're not going to reason well if you're not in touch with what is because, yeah, it's only only reality that bears genuine fruit. So maybe I'll just leave it at that. And then as your example gets more concrete, then I'll just react just right. really well, strenuously. For for example, your se- your second chapter is titled, Am I Able? Mm. So that's, that's sort of where I was going with that's it. That's where you're going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, the second chapter is all about the means, basically, whereby we attain to happiness. And the emphasis there is on the fact that God provides the means whereby we attain to happiness. Um, because I think a lot of people, and this is what would separate this book from a self-help book. One, because I, I think that that's stupid. And I think that most of our lives are dumpster fires and they're going to continue to be dumpster fires until such time as Jesus sees fit to call us home. Um, but, um, yeah, when it comes to a lot of the way in which these encouragement type books say, uh, that, you know, happiness is possible, they, they tend to typically make it an imminent reality. You know, so it's like, you've got it in you. You just need to do these three. Like if it's positive psychology, just like, you know, be thankful for three things a day and that'll really change your worldview, which is, you know, true enough. All right. I'm, I'm all up for tips and tricks and life hacks. And so far as the fruitful, I recently bought a small alarm clock because I was using my phone as an alarm clock and I was checking the Philadelphia 76ers score with a kind of addictive abandon every morning. I was like, you know what? Somebody told me to get an alarm clock once. And I repeated that counsel a variety of times whilst still using my cell phone for for an, a, a quite a few months. So maybe I should take that. You know, so I'm, I'm all for life hacking. Great. But I just don't expect much of it. And so far as I don't, I, I just don't expect much from most created things, except for, you know, like the sacraments, basically. But the, the, the whole point of that chapter is, I mean, like self-help is silly insofar as it appeals to your willpower, because if you repeat the same mistakes and you uh, incur the same losses, then you're just going to be like further down in the pit of despair because you will have been told by someone else that it was possible and they would have furnished you with the quote unquote tools for attaining to said end. But it turns out you already knew about those tools. You just weren't especially good at using them. And then now you've got a freaking life coach in your life who's like, yeah, you can do it. You're just like, you know what? Everything is worse. So I I just thought the emphasis of that chapter should be the fact that God is generous, right? And even if that does unfold in the context of time and space, and it requires of us a kind of existential patience, yet we have we have the certainty that it's good. So are we able, are we going to the right place, I guess, then? You, you asked the question about being virtuous. And, and I, I feel like that, that that ties in to your notion of ends, right? That That... To be prudent is to seek good ends. I'm not. I'm not going to be prudentially seeking to, um, you know, to to take over Switzerland or something for my own nefarious purposes. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you could, but you wouldn't get too far. Um, but yeah, I mean, that'd be called prudence of the flesh, basically. So genuine prudence is ordered towards good ends. Yep. And then prudence concerns right. itself specifically with ordering the means to those good ends. But, All right. Uh, yeah. So, so, so when, yeah. So we're talking then about about prudence itself, the the actual, I guess, activity of prudence, the the virtue, the exercising of the virtue of prudence, uh, which goes back ultimately to uh, and and you, hey, you're the philosopher here, but this goes back to Plato, <sighs> correct? He's one of his one of his cardinal virtues. Yep, he's got it. I mean, pr- so like they they kind of get sussed out in the context of the conversation between or among. Plato, Aristotle, and Cicero, those would be the big the big texts. And then you have other ancient authors who are weighing in on the matters, but 
the cardinal virtues really kind of get distilled for us by those three. Right. And so, but, but you kind of break things down through, uh, through this Thomas guy you're talking about. I have talked about him before. Yeah. Because I'm a Thomistic hack. So my approach to the tradition is just pick one person who's really important and great. And then uh, hope that through the lens of his particular thought, you can pick up other aspects of the tradition without actually mastering them. And then just attribute everything under the sun to St. Thomas, even if he's picking up some other aspect of the tradition and communicating it to you. That's my, that's my jam. Well, in a lot of ways, that's really, a, I think, a, a proper understanding of tradition, right? Because tradition isn't, uh, tradition ought to be building on itself. It ought to be, it ought to be distilling out the, the best parts of what has gone before. And, and so if you go to a great figure like Thomas, you know, you, you have every expectation that he's, uh, he's done some of the, uh, the heavy lifting for you. That is my expectation, and I think that's what he means by beginners when he talks about a certain pedagogy, which he demonstrates in the Summa Theologiae. He's like, listen, guys, I know that it's overwhelming to master the entirety of the church's tradition, right, and to do so by a kind of resource mount return, right? So this is for you. This is a pedagogical tool for you. Don't, don't lean on it as if it were a crutch, but use it as a genuine mode of inquiry. And I think that sometimes when you find people doing wonky resource mount stuff, Oftentimes they're leaping over significant aspects of the tradition because they don't like the dialectical sifting which occurred in those ages of the church's life. And they want to go back and skip over the tradition so that way they can recover parts that were suppressed, right? Or recover parts that were de-emphasized because they've got their own ends in mind. And sometimes those ends are weird. Right. They, they are not pursuing the good in those instances. Yeah, well, they're pursuing what they perceive as good insofar as all of us, you know, pursue what we perceive as good, but it's not, I, I, based on my judgment, I don't think it's the true good. So when you look at, for instance, the Source Christian movement, you know, like their resource mod efforts, which there are many things about it, which are really beautiful and commendable. Um, I mean, the mere fact that they started it in the midst of the Second World War is kind of fascinating. You know, when, when Western civilization is on the brink of destruction, they go back to the sources, which is cool. Uh, but like the first thing that they recover is, Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses. Now, I'm not hating on Gregory of, Gregory of Nyssa, um, but he says some weird stuff, which the tradition is like, yikes. Good thing that was not defined at the time of your pronouncement because we're now going to define it and you fall without the bounds of orthodoxy, my friend. Um, but they, they, like, they went back and they're like, let's do some wonky-tonk recovery because this guy needs more. He just needs more press. And I, I'm somewhat suspicious of the hermeneutic which informs that type of move. Well, that that is in a sense anti-traditional. Uh, not that not that going back and recovering things isn't isn't uh, can't inform the tradition, but the tradition it, it seems to me the purpose of it is to um, elevate that which is the best and to uh, cast aside is too harsh of a word perhaps or too harsh of a phrase, but. Um, de-emphasize at least, and sometimes cast aside that which is not uh, good or useful. I'm with you, man. I'm loving this Burkean strain because <laughs> I, I don't have to be the cranky conservative in this conversation. I can just be like the wildly unhinged nihilist, and you're just going to keep me on the rails. So cheers to you. Yeah, I can I can be Burkean all day long. That's, I love uh, that. I'm, I'm good with that. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. 
So let's talk a little bit about about your process of uh, of prudence. You say, uh, according to Thomas, there are, there are eight integral parts of prudence, which seemed like a lot of integral parts. Yeah, I love. See, that's straight Kentucky right there. I love that the the Kentucky modesty. You're over here just like mastering Edward, or excuse me, Edmund Burke's thought, and you're like, man, there were eight parts. I don't know about eight parts. That's that is Kentucky <laughs> sobriety right there. I respect that. Whereas if I'm having this conversation with one of these kind of like East Coast socialites, like only eight parts. You know, I was I was mastering a list of 17 parts the other day. It's just like, you guys, you stink. Go away. I want to go back to Kentucky. That's, um, well, that's a, that's a, a very good inclination. You're pursuing the good there. I thank you for that, Ellen. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, so eight parts. And uh, St. Thomas has, you know, he describes different senses of the word part with respect to the virtues. So he's got subjective parts, which are like species of the virtues. So in the case of prudence, I didn't talk about this at all because I didn't think that it actually f- fell within the bounds of the project. He has, you know, like there's there's monastic prudence, which is prudence for the for oneself. Um, and then there is uh, like domestic prudence, which would be prudence or economic prudence, which is prudence for your household. Or there's renutive prudence, which is the prudence which the, the, the leader, the king, exercises vis-a-vis the polis. And then political prudence, which the members of the polis exercise um, in kind of concert with him and then you got military whatever you got all kinds of kinds of prudence uh, but those we're going to set to the side those are subjective parts and then you have what are called quasi potential parts which are sub virtues which are related to the main virtue but which lack something of its grandeur or ampler if i'm just going to make up words based on french equivalents absolutely um, and i also found that those those particular ones were crazy in the sense that St. Thomas is recovering some sweet stuff from Maximus the Confessor and from St. John Damascene. And um, they're, it's interesting, but it's real nutsy-bultsy. Whereas the integral parts, because they, they, they function most like what we as an ordinary uh, non-philosophical layperson mean by parts, I think they register more readily with our experience of the world. So when he describes what an integral part is, he says it's like the foundation, the walls, and the roof of a house. So you put them all together, they get the virtue. So they're like sub-perfections. But I, I wouldn't say that they're virtues in themselves. And uh, yeah, that's the basic shape of parts. So, of course, the, the the first part, I believe it was the first one, was memory. That is, is kind of just recalling what works. Again, you know, talking talking from a Burkean standpoint. Yeah. Uh, that's a very that's a very Burkean idea. Mm-hmm. We're going to... We're going to look to see what works and what what hasn't worked, and yeah. we'll remember that. That's that's a good thing to do. Docility kind of jumped out at me. So mm-hmm. so if I'm going to live boldly, yep. then uh, then how am I going to be? How does how does being docile work in work with that? Yeah, I think I mean you can get data from a variety of different avenues. I'm thinking about the Philadelphia 76ers right now because of playoff basketball. For a while there, Doc Rivers was starting DeAndre Jordan when uh, Joel Embiid couldn't play because of a facial injury. And the entire basketball community was like, bruv, DeAndre Jordan hasn't been good at basketball for like two and a half years. Why are you doing this? You know, you should certainly start Paul Reed, for instance, or give Charles Bassey some time, or just play some small ball and put Tobias and George Niang at the four and the five. And he wouldn't do that, right? Because he thought he knew better. But I think that he didn't know better. And the advanced statistics bear that point out. So if we don't receive from this wellspring of wisdom, which is to say those who are wiser, right? Those who have a better sense of the reality at stake, 
then we just cut ourselves off from reality. And then we end up preferring ourselves to reality and to our, you know, virtuous engagement therewith. For those of you who are counting at home, that's my first use of therewith. Um, so yeah, so docility is, is huge for living well, uh, for choosing well, etc. Burke says, Oh yeah. That we'll get a, we'll throw in a little Burke here. This is Burke awesome. says that the uh, the species is wise, but the individual is foolish. Wow. So that's essential that's essentially where docility comes in. That I'm I'm recognizing that there is greater wisdom out there than I myself can possibly hope to have. Uh-huh. Yep. And that I should rely on that. Correct. And I guess if we're if we're gonna we're gonna throw in we can we can go to Elliot and talking about uh, he talks about tradition and the individual talent right that we uh, that we have to um, we have to be wary of um, I guess of of creativity uh, qua creativity because it it can be itself uh, it, it might take us down the wrong road. Yeah, I'd say novelty qua novelty, or I would say uh, the revolutionary spirit. That you can bring Chesterton into this as well. He has that image where he says, if you come across a fence in the woods, you ought to determine first either what it's keeping in or what it's keeping out before you tear it down. And uh, you know, for those of us who live in a generation or live in the midst of a of a revolutionary, a series of revolutionary movements, it's it's fascinating just to watch people destroy the edifice of Western civilization with a kind of reckless abandon and, and to do so with such swaggering confidence, even though some of the ideas which they are propounding have not been widely available, uh, except in like the last five seconds. They're like, Oh yeah, this is pat- <laughs> patently the case. It's like some, somebody just made that up like yesterday at Columbia university. How can you say with a straight face that that's patently the case? So yeah, I think that we're dealing with some pretty hardcore presentism coupled with revolutionary fury. I would agree. I would agree with all of that. Uh, so, one of the things that that uh, I, one of your one of the quotes that I that I particularly warmed to um, was your statement that prudence uh, isn't bound or uh, prudence isn't bound to a hypothetical best possible state of affairs. So that that gets a little bit to that revolutionary mindset, right? That we're we're not dealing with an abstract perfection. And I think that, that, that that's something that may sometimes inhibit, uh, you talk about the, the indecisive person, and, and I will confess that that is sometimes me, um, because that we, we kind of get married to this thing we have in our head that, that we think is the best possible scenario, but reality doesn't cooperate with my imagination on some of those things. But prudence is dealing with what is and can be, what is actually in, in front of us, not, not the abstract. Correct. And also, I mean, prudence is dealing with matter. Matter is fallible and contingent. And so it doesn't admit of optimization or maximization in the same way that uh, immaterial realities do, you know. Um, so it's, it's, just, it's just a wholly different equation. Because uh, just as soon as you touch a thing, it starts to come apart. And um, yeah, for a man who hosts a podcast called Cultural Debris, um, <laughs> this is just, I mean, it's the flotsam and jetsam of everyday affairs that we're dealing with here. So 
The world is perishing. <laughs> Correct. And we're, we're hoping to, to just salvage a little bit as we go along. That's it. That's another opportunity to bring in some G.K. Chesterton. He says that <laughs> the most uh, excellent piece of poetry that he ever came across as a child was in Robinson Crusoe when he's shipwrecked and is washed up on shore. There's a variety of other trinkets, knickknacks, odds and ends that wash up with him. And he says just the inventory is the, is the most sublime piece of poetry he ever encountered because he was struck by the fact that every item was ideal because it could have been lost. Right? It could have been lost in the ocean. And instead, he had it. Right, It was his. And he says, we too have had this hair breadth's escape. All of us have been saved from a wreck. And so I think that when, when, we, when we talk about you know, like uh, moral agency, we're talking about something more along those lines than we are about what becoming what technicians of reality or we're just not, you know, like it's, it's, and it's such a farce to act as if we were, it's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to make this part. It's like, what do you mean? Have you studied anything as ever pertaining to the history of utopian <laughs> movements? It's like, it all ends in creepy wife sharing. You know, there's no chance that this goes well. We as Galadriel once quoth are fighting the long defeat. All right. So if you're going to save it, it's going to be saved from a wreck. So all the best, you know, peace and blessings. There are many ways in which we are kindred spirits, I think, on on uh, on these issues. Um, so when we're looking at prudential choices, and you, you're this, the quote I just read was kind of towards the end of the book. Um, but we we can't. You say that we can't live in a in a f perpetual fear of the consequences, and I think that that's one of the things that that freezes us from making choices sometimes because if i make a choice then i have necessarily ruled out something else right mm -hmm. so i i have maybe forever is too strong of a term but at least for now i have pushed this to the side and i'm going with this thing and i have to live with the consequences of that and in my mind i'm thinking okay but but look, this this is going to have potentially bad consequences, and of course, because we're living in a fallen world, right? Uh, and but I but then I start saying, oh, but this other thing that I should have chosen and, and turned down, it would have been perfection itself, and all would have been merry and grand, right? Yeah, but we can't think that way. That yeah, is I'm, bad. That is bad. I'm a big fan of the "there's no greener grass; the grass is all dead" theory. Um, <laughs> So I'm just I'm cutting loose now on the uh, on the nihilism. Um, so I, I think that the grass is greener notion. I just I just don't think it holds. I just don't think it obtains because, um, you know, so this is like the Stanley Harawas theory of marriage. He says, rule number one of marriage, you will marry the wrong person. All right. <laughs> so just get over it. That's fine. I mean, insofar as the other person has flaws. And if you don't think that the other person has flaws and that person agreed to marry you. So evidently there's at least one flaw in the person's life. Um, Correct. But I think that, um, yeah, but, but, but I think that we often end up paralyzing our agency for fear of what might come or what might not come, as you described. And I think that we do ourselves a great service by saying, yeah, I mean, there are a variety of ways in which this will go, but all of them are decent, decent enough. Some of them might be better than others, but epistemically, I have very little access to that reality. So I'm just going to do a thing and then... Uh, and then the thing will be done, right? Because my perfection as a human person isn't so much bound up by op optimizing or maximizing consequences. It's by living 
right? It's by living and specifically by living freely and well. And, uh, you know, part of that story is not anguishing or agonizing over every particular item on the proverbial list. And so might you offend someone? Yes. Right. Might you suffer a setback? Yes. Might you be alienated from a loved one? Yes. Okay. But I notice, like at no point in this list have I said, might you be damned eternally? Because I think that all of these things are subordinate considerations. Okay. But if we do them all with the hope to grow in virtue, specifically to grow in our relationship with God and the way in which that relationship is instantiated in our other relationships with human beings here and now, then I just, I just don't think that we have to worry because you know, I mean, God doesn't withhold his will from us like some kind of, what, creepy necromancer. He's like, I'll tell you if you do weird things with dead bodies. It's like, yeah, what in the world, you know? It's like, why, why did he make us in the first place? So that we could just die of doubt? No, he made us so that we could come into the fullness thereof by the means which he, you know, kind of made ready at hand. So that's too long of a rant, but that's my basic thought. It occurred to me that you know, sort of the 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 abstract um, the thing that perhaps freezes us sometimes from making choices, as I was just discussing, was this sort of this this abstract idea of of an achievable perfection in my mind. There, here is here is the thing that I'm supposed to do, or at least there is a thing that I'm supposed to do. I don't know what that thing is, uh, and you talk about this idea of of uh, you know, taking, quoting Newman, uh, taking one step at a time, right. That I can't see the distance that I'm, 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 uh, I'm bound by what I'm able to see and I can't see what God sees. And, and you say that God's plans are at work in our own ability and desire that, 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 that abstract perfection is, is really only attainable in, in heaven anyway. Um, and that it really leads to kind of a form of Gnosticism, really, that I'm, I'm detached from the realities of my own life. Yep. Yeah, no, I think, um, what do I think? I think a variety of things. But I think that God created us with a purpose in mind. God wasn't like, ah, excellent. Um, so we got some cosmic stuff here. I'm going to randomly assemble it and then just kind of see what happens. And then he's like, oh, all right, I'm going to call this one Gregory Pine. Ooh, that's a, that's a silly, silly human being. I really wonder what, what the rest of his life is going to look like. Uh, because that just doesn't give testimony or it just doesn't give expression to the wisdom of God. I think that God created, to us, created us to a purpose. And that we have access to that purpose. Okay, so God's plans are not arbitrary. They are wise, all right? And on account of the fact that they are wise, we, by turning a contemplative gaze to those plans, can discern something of their wisdom. And I think that part of the way, or one of the ways in which his wisdom reg registers in our human lives is at the level of desire. Because when you think about it, God created us and he desires that we return to him in one big blazing accolade surge of glory. Um, but, but specifically, you know, that's to take place through the life of grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit. But it's to take place um, as an ongoing perfection of our nature because he wouldn't have made us this way if he didn't intend us to save us this way. 
Um, so then for us, right, who are human beings, we have minds with which to know and we have hearts with which to love. And when I say heart, I, I intend, you know, to entail both like will or like rational appetite and then emotion or passion, which is say sense appetite, which all taken together, you know, kind of like heart, general, general appetitive tendency. But on account of the fact that we're sinful, those things are kind of mixed up. So there's ignorance and there's malice and there's weakness and there's concupiscence and it makes it difficult for us to discern what actually is good in life. But, but, but we're adamant within the context of Catholic theology that the nature remains good. It just remains uh, good in a diminished way. So the whole drama of the life of grace, virtue, gifts of the Holy Spirit is that that nature is healed and grown. And in the, in, you know, in the process, we come to discover what it is that we truly love, not that it completely reverses what we formerly loved, but it reveals to us the true, the true face of that love or the true aspect of that love. And in, and in the process, it will, it will embolden it. It will actually uh, kind of like inflame that desire. So I think the desire is a good place in which to look, presu- you know, uh, presuming that or provided that one is seeking to grow in holiness. So for me, the first questions are, you know, are you making good use of the sacraments? Do you have a life of prayer? Uh, is there a modicum of penance in your life? Um, it, you know, like, do you have good Christian friendships? Are you studying the faith, etc.? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then I think that we can genuinely begin to uh, trust our desires. Very good. I want to shift gears just for a moment before uh, before we end things. And uh, and ask you about your uh, your podcast Godsplaining, which is is on my list of regular podcasts I listen to, wow. and uh, and and of course is is the reason I reached out to you to begin with because I heard uh, heard you talking about the new book and thought I should see if uh, if Father Gregory is unwise enough, is imprudent enough to be is. on my podcast, and the answer was yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us uh, tell us a little bit about Godsplaining. The basic idea of God's planning is that God created us to be contemplatives um, and that he communicates to us, you know, by his revelation, by his grace, so as to call forth from us a kind of contemplative gaze, a kind of contemplative look on reality. The word itself is a joke, um, but it's, I think, a, a dignifying joke. So you've heard, obviously, of mansplaining, which is when a, a man tells a woman how to do a simple task, but with tons of condescension. Um, because he doesn't think you're capable either of understanding or of performing the task. So it ends up being um, uh, an undignifying condescension. But then Godsplaining, okay, so what we're tapping into there is this whole notion of the divine condescension, because condescension effectively, all it means, con is great or with, but in this case, great. And then dissension, you know, obviously, descent. Uh, God descends greatly in order to commune with human beings in a way that is closer to their experience, right? In a way that accommodates his divine life to their reception. And so he manifests and communicates himself in a way that is best received, uh, in a way that is more easily received, more humanly received, uh, what would you say, more proximately received. And so I think about preaching as a kind of act, I mean, it's a joke, but as an act of God's planning insofar as it's a form of, it's an extension of the revelatory and gracing act. Uh, so it's an ex- it's an extension of the divine condescension, but it's not the type of condescension which uh, makes a person feel like trash and angry. It's the type of condescension which ennobles, right? Which emboldens, which brings out the native excellence. That's a, that's all just an explanation of the title, which says nothing about the podcast. It's just Dominican friars talking to each other about things that they find interesting with the hope that other people will find those things interesting as well. But the goal is that we become contemplatives, which is to say when we when we cast our gaze on reality, we seek God. 
in all of its contours. And so, yeah, we have regular episodes, which just talk about all kinds of weird things. And then we sometimes do reflections on the readings for the Sunday liturgy. And then we sometimes have guests on, which are inevitably the best episodes because those people have lots of good things to say. So, uh, yeah, that's the basic shape. Yeah, it's a fun podcast that I will uh, recommend people listen to after, of course, they've listened to Cultural Degree. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so what are what are on your what are your plans upcoming? Do you have another book you're working on, or uh, you mentioned uh, I think a dissertation you might be uh, might be completing? Yeah, so there's a fire, and then there are some irons in it, and I'm doing my best <laughs> to uh, tend the fire and you know work through the irons. So I'm writing a dissertation. It's five chapters long. I just submitted my third chapter. I'm coming to the the end of my second year uh, here at the University of Freeburg. My province gave me three years, so I'll probably finish the dissertation sometime in the the winter of next year, sometimes sometime between like January and March. So you're you're essentially making taking as you know making the the work extend to the time given. No, I'm just doing as fast as I can. <laughs> but um, the human heart, well, the human mind and heart can only bear so much. So I work on intellectual projects for fifty hours a week, um, and that leaves basically Saturday and Sunday free because I just do ten hour days which leaves me free for ministry goat rodeo, which is my shorthand term for wild ministerial experiences of such a nature that I could not have anticipated them previously. I often find myself on like long train rides with grievous delays, like going to people and then doing like ministry in a variety of languages with, you know, like four continents represented. I like sometimes look around, I'm like, where the heck am I? Like what planet do I live on? Um, But it's great. Because I met a lot of really, really wonderful people and I've had a lot of really wonderful conversations and sacramental encounters and yada, yada, that's and such. Um, actually, just a small preview into my life. Let's see. It was a couple weekends ago. I Saturday morning, I took the train to this, this like nearby city and celebrated Dominican Rite Mass for a small congregation. And then I was like, you know, I have five hours before I have to be back in the saddle to report record a podcast at 3 p.m. So I'm going to walk home from the city, which was awesome. It was like 22 kilometers, whatever that is in miles, 15 miles or something like that, which is great. And it snowed the day before. This is like a, this is like five weeks ago now, I guess. And so I was trudging and it was it was awesome. What did I listen to on the way? I think I listened to an Agatha Christie novel, which isn't the most sublime, but hey, it did the, it did the job. And then I got home one minute before the podcast recording started, which was great. <laughs> and then I finished that, and then I took a shower, and then I like ate a candy bar, which it seems like is a habit in my life. And then I gave a lecture via Zoom to my parents' parish in Newtown, Pennsylvania, Go St. Andrews. And then I finished that, and like two minutes later, the doorbell rang. So the person who was picking me up for a vigil mass was at the door. And so then I went with them, vigil mass, and then like met with some cool people for dinner, which is great. And then the next day... I had, I had a mass at 9 a.m. followed by Stations of the Cross, followed by Confessions. And then I went to another site and did Confessions until like noon. And then another mass and then a meal and then a conference on some spiritual theme, which I forgot, and followed by questions and answers. And then I came home and went directly to the Adoration Chapel and then came back to my convent in time for Vespers. It was awesome. It was so sweet. And I was like a shell of my formal self that night, but it's, it's cool. So 50 hours of academic work, and that leaves the weekends free to gallivant in a variety of ministerial settings and sometimes to go hiking, which is sweet. And then, uh, and listen listen to Agatha Christie and listen to Agatha Christie. Now we're talking. I listened to another one today whilst hiking, um, cards on the table, which was not bad. Although sometimes I feel like the endings to those stories are entirely inorganic because you have no way by which of anticipating, but 
that's neither here nor there. Um, and then I'm, I'm starting to work on a book on the Eucharist for this like Eucharistic renewal revival. Mm-hmm. And then the next book will be on a theology of vocation, kind of broadly conceived Christ, Christian vocation. So that's, that's two from now, I guess. Um, and then I'm starting a new podcast for Ascension Presents where we read spiritual classic, classics, myself and another brother from God's Planning. And so those are just going to be like short one month, like an episode a day for a month type things. And it'll probably just be like two seasons a year. So not like a, a heavy, heavy lift, but nonetheless. And then I'm, I'm onboarding again with the Thomistic Institute to help with their podcast, to interview lecturers, uh, do like follow-ups with them. As I list these things, it sounds, I, f- I feel like my life is maybe a little out of whack, but whatever. I haven't thought about all these things in the same thought. But yeah, is all of that, is all of that prudent is the, is the question. That's a great question, Alan. And I, th- I, I would, I would, I hesitate to answer because I feel like an, any answer would be precipitous. Um, what is the uh, what is the first of the uh, of the classics that you are reading of in your new podcast? We're reading Saint Francis de Sales' Introduction to the Devout Life. Okay, very oh. good. Well, I look forward to that one. That will be uh, maybe I'll go hiking while I listen to it. Now we're talking. Let's go. <laughs> I'll, I'll go to the Red River Gorge and and listen to uh, listen to you read. Bingo. Yeah, take take a, take a moment under Gray's Arch for me. That was one of my favorite spots. And then Chimney Rock. I was once out of Chimney Rock and a guy pulled up on a motorcycle with a bottle of Patron and started taking shots and then pouring shots out for his fallen brothers. And every time he took a shot and poured a shot out, he handed me a shot. I had five <laughs> shots of Patron within, within seven minutes because there was like a big, scary, leather-chapped man offering me alcohol and I didn't feel like I had a choice. So uh, it, was, it, was, it was a day. It, it, was, uh, it was prudent to take what is offered. I thought so. Did you uh, did you ever stop at uh, the the pizza place? Was it Miguel's? Is it Miguel's oh, pizza? I love that place. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I did, right. and I Very liked good. it. Yeah, I, I have a friend who I guess he grew up in Summersville, West Virginia, but he and his family would go off into River River Gorge, and he was the one that kind of introduced me to the Natural Bridge side because I've been going to the the gorge itself for a while. But he's like, you got to bump over to the bridge too. Not as cool as the gorge, but nonetheless, Miguel's Pizza was the highlight. Yeah, very good. Well, I hope that you um, you eventually are able to stop slumming in Switzerland and make it back to Kentucky. Wow, that's that's the high point right there. <laughs> we 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 did an hour of conversation for precisely that moment. So I I congratulate you. Yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> uh, I do <laughs> I do appreciate you being on and uh, and discussing prudence with me. Yep. And. Uh, I wish you well on your gallivanting and uh, and your dissertation. Hey, thank you. All the above. And I wish you well in your podcasting. And then whatever you do to uh, earn money, make a living. That is yeah. well. Well, I, I mean, listening to you, I feel like I need to start like five more podcasts nah. to, to even to even uh, even be in the same uh, in the same ball game. No. Nah. The book is Prudence, Choose Confidently, Live Boldly from Uh, our Sunday visitor and uh, I suppose that is available wherever all fine books are sold it is indeed alright Father Gregory Pine thank you for being on and uh, hope that we can chat again sometime alright until then cheers